Father, we thank you for this night and for this chance to gather in your name. We thank you for this book, the screw tape letters, and for the wisdom that it contains about what it means to serve and follow you. We pray that you would bless our time together tonight, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so who knows what this is? And can it be? Charles Wesley. All right, good. Who knows who Charles Wesley was? He was the founder of the Methodist Church, but he did not intend to be. As he said, I have been an Anglican priest all my life. I intend to die an Anglican priest and lie buried in the Anglican churchyard. So, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he was the 18th child of his parents and his godly mother, Susanna. It's hard to imagine that. He attended Westminster School, which is the school of Westminster Abbey, which is right up there with Eton and Harrow as the greatest public schools in the UK. And he was a preacher who came and preached at St. Philip's Church in Charleston with his brother, John. But he was not really thoroughly converted until after he had already become a priest. And this hymn is one of his greatest hymns, and we will talk about that hymn in a little bit. All right, so as we have been talking about, we are working on learning about standing against the devil's schemes, and that is an important thing to learn how to do, because as we've talked about, we are in a battle, whether we like to think about that or not, and Lewis's book gives us a lot of great clues about how to stand rather than roll over when we encounter the devil's schemes. And as we've talked about, this verse really puts the whole thing into context. This verse tells us that we are in a battle and that we need to be equipped for that. So let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
And I want to just point out a couple of things about this because this is a familiar passage and we get used to hearing it. And one of the great things that is good to pray to the Lord for is that he would restore your sense of wonder at Scripture. Because it's very easy to read that and say, oh. (laughs) But if you look at this, this is an amazing verse. It is a call to action. And it is not a passive sit on your couch and think about it sort of verse. But it is instead a call to do a lot of different things to be vigilant against the schemes of the enemy. And I would like to suggest to you that most of us in the church in the 21st century are couch potatoes, and we are not really in, or we think we're not in the battle. But we are in the battle. It's just that we have been neutralized by the enemy. So the whole idea here is being active, and you might have noticed that word stand shows up over and over and over again. And the other thing that you will notice is that everything that we are to put on is not of ourselves. It is something that is part of God's kingdom that we are to put on. And that is a reminder that we cannot stand in our own strength, but only through the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, just a refresher of why study Screwtape today. This was written way back in 1941. That was a long time ago. How could it possibly be relevant? There are lessons in this book about understanding the battle in which we find ourselves. There are also lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. There are lessons on the psychology of temptation, lessons on habits to cultivate that deepen faith in Christ, and perhaps most importantly, lessons on living a boldly Christian life. Because remember, what Satan is trying to do, what Wormwood is all about, is to stop the patient from actually doing anything. And so all the things that he's trying to stop him from doing, we're going to tease out all those things. Because if you tease out all those things, what you see is a recipe for becoming somebody that annoys the heck out of the devil, which is a great goal. And... One of the most important subtexts in this book, which I do not understand why more people have not written about this, but one of the subtexts throughout this book is that what Satan hates more than anything else are virtuous habits, or what you might call habits of holiness, habits that will help you to grow in your walk with Christ. Because those kinds of habits annoy the heck out of Satan. Because they're not based on your emotions or experiences. They're based on discipline and on truth. And when those kinds of habits come into play, Satan can't get in there and mess with your thinking in the way that he could otherwise. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to rehearse a couple of things from last week. The first is this little excerpt from letter 13, jumping ahead a little bit, where Lewis uh, has screw tape. Say to Wormwood, let him, that is the patient, do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. 
As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. And Lewis stole this idea, uh, I would say, first of all, from the New Testament, because I think (laughs) it is there, uh, but also from Joseph Butler, who's someone who's greatly underappreciated, an Anglican clergyman who was dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, who was the head chaplain to King George II, who did a lot of writing, and he did a lot of writing about habits. And this little part that's in bold here, Habits of the mind are produced by the exertion of inward practical principles, i.e., by carrying them into act or acting upon them. And as we said last week, and what you see in that first letter uh, in the screw tape letters, is that Wormwood is being advised to keep the patient from acting at all costs to just work on his feelings, to feel, oh, it's so sad that those people are suffering. Oh, I feel bad for them. And you can feel bad, and you can feel bad, and you can feel bad. But does that do anything for the people who are suffering? No, it does nothing, except you can feel virtuous that you spent a while feeling bad for them. But that is not what it is about. And I want to make a very careful distinction here. Feeling and thinking sort of in a mushy way about that, that is distinct from having compassion that leads you into prayer. Prayer is action. Prayer is not an emotion. Prayer is probably the most underrated action in spiritual warfare. So Lewis uh, is going to talk about Habits, and last week we talked a little bit about this book, The Common Rule, which has just recently come out, and I skipped over this because I was running out of time, so I wanted to pick it up tonight because I think this is important. Um, Justin Early, as I mentioned last week, went to the University of Virginia, did very well, studied English literature, went to Georgetown Law School. Uh, He was deeply involved in the Christian Study Center at UVA, Uh, met a deeply Christian girl while he was at UVA. They got married, and they felt a call as soon as he finished Georgetown Law School, and this was about five years ago, to go to China as missionaries. That is not what people usually do when they finish law school. Who is this? Justin Early, who read this book. And he went to China and had uh, three years there before they felt that God was leading them back to the United States And he came back and went to work in a law firm doing mergers and acquisitions work. And when he came back, he thought, why is it that when I was in China under oppression and persecution, it was easy for me to live a boldly Christian life where I felt the Holy Spirit and where I saw fruit in ministry. And then when I come back to this Christian nation of the United States, I find it is almost impossible to experience real community or keep my faith alive. And he came to the conclusion that part of the problem is that we have completely 
messed up our understanding of what it means to be part of the body of Christ and to be the church. And his thesis was that up until the last quarter of the 19th century, if you were a Christian, you were really involved with your church. You were there multiple times a week. You usually lived in walking distance or pretty close proximity, and they were your people. Whereas now, you go to church like you go to the grocery store. And the result of that is that there's been this privatization of faith where we've taken out the body of Christ in this country, um, except when we're together on Sundays. And Early says that the other problem is that up until the last quarter of the 19th century, there was really strong emphasis on what he calls Christian practice. And practice is a great word because if you think about practice like football practice or piano practice, how often do you practice? Every day. And he says particularly this, some of this lasted longer than the church identity did, but that what happened is that particularly in the 60s, there was this rebellion against any kind of discipline, um, any kind of authority, and that that swung over into the church and made people rebel against any kind of spiritual <laughs> discipline. So that most people are, in their faith, motivated more by their feelings than they are by habits or obedience. And so he wrote this book. He's probably, I don't think this guy's 30 yet. He might be 30. But this book just came out, and it's caused a big splash in the Christian world. And the book is called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And these are just a couple of quotations. We are all living according to a specific regimen of habits, and those habits shape most of our life. Habits form much more than our schedules. They form our hearts. We think that by rejecting any limits on our habits, we remain free to choose. Actually, by barraging ourselves with so many choices, we get so decision-fatigued that we're unable to choose anything well. Since we're too tired to make any good decisions, we're extremely susceptible to letting other people, from manipulative bosses to invisible smartphone programmers, make our decisions for us. This rule of life is intended to pattern communal life and the direction of purpose and love instead of chaos and decay. Only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor? And there's a lot to think about there. Yes? Can I just interject something? Yes. I just went to the New Wineskins Missions Conference, and our preacher on Sunday was Bishop Kwashi from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And they are heavily persecuted. Yes. And um, he has personally been attacked nearly, but he has this incredible joy. And he said, one point he made was that he gets up every morning at 4 to pray. Because he says if the local imam is going to call everybody to prayer, he's going to get up and join them in prayer. So he prays every morning at 4 when the local call goes out from the mosque for prayer. That is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And it reminds me, one of the things he proposes in this book is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be stopping several times during the day to pray. And he said, you know, that used to be 
normal, and we I talked about last week in the prayer book, there's morning, noonday, and evening prayer, and it is expected when you look in the rubric that individuals are going to be doing that, and they're going to be doing the daily office of scripture reading every day. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you do that every day, um, because we're not trying to have pharisaical righteousness. But the flip side of it is when you, we've very often thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And one of the things I remember, and I meant to say this at lunch today, but part of what made such an impression on me when I was doing a lot of overseas work, uh, I spent a lot of time in Kuala Lumpur. And Kuala Lumpur, as you may know, in Indonesia, is a very, very prosperous city that at one point had the highest skyscrapers in the world um, when I was there in the 1990s. But the interesting thing is I would be doing business with these people that were executives of multi-billion dollar companies and their Armani suits and Gucci shoes. And the imam's call would come and they would stop the meeting and they would get out their prayer mats in the conference room and they would do their prayers right there. And that was just what they did. It was what everybody did. And you think, well, what happened to us? So I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, but just the, the idea is that there's, there's a lot in our heritage that we need to recover. Because when we wonder, well, why were those saints of yore, why were they so saintly? Well, a lot of it was not only because of persecution, but because of habits that they were trained in about how to follow Christ. So uh, from last week, one of the things we're going to do each week is we're going to tease out a couple of habits to cultivate to annoy the devil, which is a great goal. So the first one, and these are all drawn from that first letter, is to connect thinking and doing. Remember, Screwtape says to Wormwood, never let him think logically about anything. Never let him think that because he's feeling a particular way, that should issue into an action. So you want the guiding principles and values of your life to be clear. You want to have a coherent worldview and pattern your life and habits accordingly. There was a big movement probably 15 years ago about personal mission statements and family mission statements that was maybe a little hokey, but there's some really good stuff in that because if you have a mission statement, you know what you're about. And last week we talked about the difference between Chick-fil-A and Burger King. Burger King's got 40 things on the menu, none of which they do particularly well. And Chick-fil-A has got a small menu, but it's really good. They're focused. They know what they're doing. The culture, when you go into a Chick-fil-A, it feels very different than when you walk into a Burger King. So that's sort of what this is talking about. The second thing is to learn to raise your eyes to things that are above, to focus on universal issues, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what the ancient Christians called the transcendentals, rather than the immediate stream of ordinary life and busyness. Colossians 3.1, set your mind on things above. Or, as we talked about last term in Philippians, think on these things. Choose what you're thinking about. Remember in letter one, Screwtape says, I have this patient I'd worked on for 20 years, and I thought he was solidly on the road to our father below. And suddenly, he started thinking about a universal truth 
an issue of Truth with a capital T, and he said, I saw it, started to see 20 years' work tottering. And the idea is that he was reading about something and thinking about something that was on a completely different level than what the newsboy outside is shouting about or what the bus is doing, all those things. We tend to think that what's real is what's happening out in the street rather than what's happening in the kingdom of God. And scripture is so clear in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is infinitely more real than anything that this world can offer us. Thirdly, spend time in beautiful places reading things that make you think and considering their implications. Beauty is one of the great pointers that should call us to think about who God is. And God has scattered beauty profligately around the universe. That whole idea of sunset has no evolutionary purpose for all of that beauty, and yet it is beautiful. There's beauty in so much of creation. And Romans tells us, that God did that intentionally to make plain what kind of God he is. And yet we have succumbed to what Tolkien said was Satan's plot, or Sauron, as the character is in The Lord of the Rings, uh, of waking up in the dark, getting in our ugly little car, driving to an ugly office uh, where we sit in an ugly cubicle under fluorescent lights, and stay there until it's dark, and then get in our ugly car and drive back to our ugly little apartment and turn on the box and sit there until the next morning. And that's a little bit of an overstatement, but the idea is that we become enslaved. We start living like rats. We start living like subhuman creatures. Whereas prior to the 20th century, there was a big emphasis on beauty in architecture. And deconstructionism... Right, I'm just not going to go there. All right. Read up on deconstructionism if you're interested in this. But it has affected everything. So we have to, as Christians, rebel against that and reclaim this idea of seeking after beauty. And there's this lovely quote from Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, which is an underappreciated book of Lewis's. And he says this, gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. And that's a good place to be, to, to thank God. It's a really good thing to thank God. But there's more. You should go farther. He's, and then he says, adoration, which is what we look for um, in our relationship with God, adoration and worship. What must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And as we said last week, coruscations is an obscure word. But what that means is if you've got a three-carat diamond from Krogan's and you put it under a bright light and you see all of those sparks and glints as the diamond moves, those sparks and glints are coruscations. So what Lewis is saying is that the beauty that we see are just it's the tip, the little tip, of what's really there, that those glints are what we're seeing. And if that is so beautiful that it moves our hearts to joy, what must God who created all of that be like? And then the fourth thing, explore the real sciences and the wonder of the earth and the heavens. Now this is something where I want to meddle just a little bit 
as we go over this. I think for a lot of us um, who are Christians, we have gotten so tired of the debates about science and creation and all that that we've kind of just checked out of that game. But what I want to encourage you to do, as Lewis says in the Screwtape letter, one of the pieces of advice that Screwtape gives Wormwood is don't let the patient anywhere near real science. Because if he gets near real science, like astronomy or physics or biology, he is going to start asking ultimate questions. And when he starts asking ultimate questions, there's no telling where that may lead. And it will not be good from the perspective of our father below. So I want to encourage you, if you are a little bit afraid or don't feel like you know a lot about this area, to do a little bit of reading. Even if you're on the beach or snorkeling, um, (laughs) do a little bit of reading. This first book by John Lennox is very accessible. It's called God's Undertaker. Has science buried God? John Lennox was one of C.S. Lewis's students. Not surprisingly, the legions of C.S. Lewis's students have risen up and taken leadership in almost every realm of Christian academia. It's quite remarkable. But Lennox has, I think, three or maybe four doctorates, um, one in biology, one in philosophy, one in mathematics. He holds a chair of mathematics at Oxford University, um, but he can speak to normal people like us. And uh, this book is really great. The other thing, if you can't quite make yourself read a book, um, what you can do is if you go on YouTube, Veritas Forum, which is an excellent organization that does Christian ministry primarily in Ivy League schools, has John Lennox in a lot of different debates with people who are atheists. And Lennox is really good. So um, that might be something to explore. John Collins, Science and Faith, Friends or Foe. This guy is a prominent theologian who has an undergraduate and master's degree summa cum laude from MIT. And um, he has a really interesting perspective as well. And then the last thing, love God with your mind. We hear this in church every Sunday, but we don't attach to it. So in the summary of the law, we are told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We don't ever think about what that means. But what that means is exercising your mind in connection with your faith. So I want to move on into letter two. One of the things that uh, I want to remind you about is to please feel free in your own copy of Screwtape to write all over it, to highlight, to put stars or asterisks or whatever, because what you're going to see as we walk through this book is it is not organized in any kind of way. Um, The topics go back and forth all over the place, and there's no index. So if you're moved by something in one of the letters, uh, make sure that you note it, because otherwise when you go back and try to find it, it can be a little difficult. So uh, if you have this, it was in the handout, or if you've got the book, I would encourage you to read along with me. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. 
In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient. Oh, look at that, habits. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out a tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in the church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you'll have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses with his inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits... Oh habits, to any of the goals which he sets before, he leaves them to do it on their own. And there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, 
They become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. All you then have to do is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, there is a lot to unpack in here. So we will see. We probably won't get through all of it, but I'll try to contain myself so we make some progress. So the first... Right at the beginning of the letter, the first habit to cultivate to really annoy the devil is to embrace Christianity not just as a theory, but by committing your life to Christ and being transformed. One of the things that he says in that first paragraph is these initial flutters of emotion and conversions that a lot of times is just an emotional flurry and it's not really conversion where you admit your absolute poverty and that you are a beggar at the foot of the cross. Instead, it's a theory. It's spiritual. Spirituality is very fashionable right now. Uh, If you spend much time with people who are under the age of 35, and particularly people under the age of 25, you'll hear a lot the phrase, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I.e., that means I think about spiritual things. And don't you judge me if I don't act on them. So um, embrace Christianity not just as a theory, but committing your life to Christ and being transformed. This reminds me of an old talk I heard when I was in college where the speaker said if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And it's something to think about. Again, we are not talking about works righteousness here. What we're talking about are habits that move you in the direction of following Jesus. Jesus' command more often than anything else is follow me. And following means you have to get up and you have to move and do something. All right, so the second one, and this is one where I think we can all grow. I was very personally convicted about this one. Deepen your understanding of the church and scripture and history, the church triumphant and the church militant and the communion of saints. Now, that may sound very theological and a little scary to you, 
But let me unpack this just a little bit. This is a profoundly New Testament concept that used to be part and parcel of the faith of the saints, and we've sort of just forgotten about it. We think that the church is where we go on Sundays. And even though we've all heard Jeff say or heard the other clergy say, the church is not the building, it's the people. There's still part of us that thinks it's the building. And if we get beyond that, we think it's the people, and we think it's the people that are in the pews on Sunday morning or in the rector's forum or even in C.S. Lewis class. But the fact of the matter is the church is the vast array of all of the saints in Christ Jesus, those who have gone on to be with the Lord, the disciples, the early martyrs, the saints of the church all through history, and those who are following Jesus Christ now of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That is the church, all of them together. And without any of them, you don't have the whole church. And these words, the church triumphant, is the church that has gone on to be with the Lord. Those who are worshiping at the throne of the Lamb with the cherubim and the seraphim, that is the church triumphant. The church militant is the church that we see, those of us who are still living, who are following Jesus. The communion of the saints is what brings all of us together, that we are all worshiping Jesus, whether we are in the kingdom of God with Jesus or whether we're in the kingdom of this world seeking to follow Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about this is that there is a whole host of witnesses around us. Hebrews is particularly strong in conveying this idea. And we forget that we're not alone in this battle. And I want to just share a couple of little things. These are a little, a little dense because they're from Anglican documents, but hang in there with me. Um, even if you're not Anglican, uh, because I think they will bless you, because I believe this is what the scripture teaches on these concepts. The first thing, Anglicans believe that the church on earth is united with the church in heaven, sanctorum communio, that's just fancy communion of the saints. They speak of the church militant here on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. They worship God together with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. And it's not an accident that when we have communion, that right after the Sursum Corda, the lift up your hearts, we have therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name forever praising thee and saying, holy, holy, holy. Well, guess where that comes from? Revelation, that's what is going on in heaven. And we are brought together and there's this really cool theology about communion in our tradition that many of us, even if we're cradle Anglicans, don't understand. And that is this whole idea that uh, when we do communion, and this is the second part, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper carries a command, do this for the remembrance of me. And the problem is remembrance in the Greek is a much richer word than it is in English. The word for remembrance, anamnesis, means the past becoming real in the present. The past becoming real in the present, which happens by the promise of Christ and the sacrament. The Lord's Supper is the meal of unity for the baptized people of God 
who are united with the Lord and with one another as they receive his body and blood. They receive him by faith with joy and thanksgiving. When Christians commune, they are united with the church militant and the church triumphant, already one in the kingdom of God, yet not fully realized. In this sense, the Lord's Supper is truly a foretaste of the feasts to come. The church communes in hope, yearning and praying for that day when the redeemed gather at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that is what's happening when you go up to communion. And all the architecture of our church building points you to that. And when you go, and I think I said this earlier, I'd never need this until when I got stuck teaching confirmation class one Sunday, which reminded me that there is blessing sometimes in being stuck with something. But when I I was teaching them about communion, and I was looking at the altar, and I thought, what is this on these cushions? Because the ones at the altar are all crosses, but the ones at the communion rail are something different. Well, I finally realized, after a little research, that what is on the cushions at the altar rail are the symbols of the 12 apostles. So when we kneel to take communion, we are reminding ourselves that we are in communion with the 12 apostles and we are resting on the foundation of faith that they set by living out that faith and giving their lives for Christ. If you start thinking about these things, it will change your whole perception of what's going on in communion. It's also not an accident that architecturally, when you walk up to communion, and some people don't like this, the choir is right there, and they are very often loud. And the reason for that is that it is like going to the altar of God, to the throne of God, where the praises of his people are being proclaimed. So... This is something we need to reclaim. We need to not think about our poor little church all alone in this battle. We need to realize that we are part of a vast army. Uh, If you, I'm not going to do this because I don't have time, but (laughs) go home, look on YouTube, Google, well not Google, but on the YouTube search bar, put in for all the saints, big sing. And what that will do is it will get you that same place we saw at the beginning, uh, Royal Albert Hall in London, with thousands and thousands and thousands of people singing for all the saints, which is a hymn about this concept. And it will help you to worship and understand this concept in a way that you have not before. So if you feel alone, that you feel like you're walking alone and serving Christ, remember that there is this great cloud of witnesses that is all around you and that the, the war has been won on the cross. The battles and skirmishes are still going on, but the war has been won. And Satan doesn't want us to remember that. He doesn't want us to understand that truth. So the third thing, view others through the lens of Christ rather than through the lens of culture or self-interest. This is really hard. We live in a culture that is obsessed with external appearances. If you had talked to St. Augustine about Botox, he would have not understood what in the world you were thinking about. 
The idea that somebody would inject themselves with something like that to look younger would be impossible for him to comprehend. But we live in a culture that is... I know you just take it for your migraine, but... um, We are obsessed with appearances in our culture. And even though we know it's wrong, we've been brought up, don't judge a book by its cover. We've been brought up in the church. God looks not on the outside, but God looks on the heart. We look at people and we judge them. And that is exactly what Screwtape is leaning into in that letter. Look at those people in the pew. Look at the guy that's got kind of the oily expression, the person whose shoes aren't quite right, the person who's got the hairdo from the previous decade, you know, all those things. Focus on those things, because if you're focusing on those things, are you thinking about the saints triumphant and the foundation of the saints and the apostles and the glory of God? No, you're thinking about, where did they buy that? That's awful. I wouldn't wear that in public if you paid me. You know, we, we think all these things. And what we need to do, if you struggle with this, which I would, if we were honest, we would all say that we struggle with this. The very best thing you can do when your mind starts to go there is pray for the person instead. And there's this beautiful verse from Corinthians. All of 2 Corinthians 5 is just awesome on this topic, but you're just getting a little snippet here. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Those of you who remember from last term when we talked about the weight of glory, there's this beautiful section in there when Lewis says, you have never met a mere mortal. Every person that you encounter, if you saw them in their glorified state, would be a god or a goddess that you would be strongly tempted to worship. And he said, we make fun of these people, we snub them, we forget that they are made in God's image. And it is so important when we disdain other people because of the way they look, we are judging the creative act of God. And that is not a place we want to be. So this is, this is something we need to understand. And the other reason that this is so important is not only is it wrong in an absolute sense, but it gives Satan such a foothold. Um, it gives him such a foothold to distract us from the business of the kingdom of God. And then the next thing, focus on the ultimate goal and the joy of following Christ, not the labor. Focus on the commitment rather than the emotion. What are you building? Understand you need to be transformed. And there's this great verse from Hebrews that's exactly what we've been talking about. And I'd like us to just read this together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is a great verse to memorize, and I just want to unpack that first little part. The Greek there is as if you were in a stadium and you were running, and the stands are full of people who are cheering you on. That is what this is talking about, that we are surrounded by that cloud of witnesses and the church triumphant cheering us on. And so, therefore, we are to lay aside the weight and the sin, and we're to run with endurance the race that's set for us, looking to Jesus and his example. Because if you think about Jesus' life, he knew that his destiny was the cross. And yet, if you look at Jesus' life and his interactions with people, they are characterized by love and joy. They are not characterized by self-pity or anxiety or any of those kinds of things. Because Jesus knew that the cross was the gateway to joy. The joy was set before him on the other side of the cross because he knew in the resurrection death would be conquered, sin would be conquered, and that the kingdom of God would be open to all who believe. And And don't you think, too, that just as they're saying, looking at Jesus, the founder of perfection of our faith, that it's, the again, the Colosseum image of looking unto the emperor, keeping your eyes on the emperor because you're running uh, for his glory because he's the one that started the race, you know, and you're, you're to fix your eyes on him. Same with Christ here. That's the whole image character. Yeah, I think there's certainly an element of that. But I think that the primary thing here, though, is the the idea of thinking of this as the heavenly, the heavenly race, and that Jesus is the one that we long to give glory to. And so when we focus on him and then focus on his example and remember what he suffered compared to what, if you're like me, you'd like to get out your little violin. <laughs> Such a terrible day. <laughs> yeah. But if you contrast that, to what Jesus went through, there's no comparison. So we need to put those little violins somewhere where we can't get at them. All right, and then the bottom, constantly keep at the front of your mind and heart a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy and calling a sinner like you to be in relationship with him. I'm going to say that one more time. Constantly keep at the front of your mind and heart a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy and calling a sinner like you to be in relationship with him. This is so unbelievably important. And remember, at the end of the letter, Screwtape says, the patient thinks he's done God a favor by converting because he's such a good guy. And now he's gone to this church with these people that are sort of beneath him. And isn't that so wonderful that I'm coming in to bless these people with my exalted presence? And the problem with that is that the best metaphor for Christianity is that it is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I've said this before, but it's not an accident that when you go to communion, what you do is you go up, you kneel down, you put your head down, and you hold up your hands. It is the posture 
of a beggar. And that is so important. This is one of the reasons that the hymns of the church are such a great treasure for us to hold on to. Because I, I like a lot of contemporary Christian music, but if you spend a lot of time looking at lyrics, what you will notice is that in a lot of contemporary music, it is I, 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 I. I, I, I. Um, some people call it Jesus is my girlfriend music. And there, 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 is, there is an element of that in some poorly written worship songs. Because people don't like in our culture to be told you're a wretched sinner. They don't like that. But they had no bones about that in the 18th century. And I want us to just look for a minute. Now you see why we had this song. I want to just read you these words. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. He was already a priest. He wrote it in 1738, but he had not been fully converted to Jesus Christ. And on Whit Sunday on Pentecost in 1738, he had a life-changing, knockdown encounter with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And he wrote this hymn as a result. And I want you to look at his sense of wonder that God would save a wretch like him. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who come to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Tis mystery all the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all. Let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now, I'd like to suggest we need to reclaim that understanding. It is a beautiful testimony of the fact that it is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that any of us has any hope. As Jeff Miller is fond of saying, the scripture says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Dead people can't do anything. (laughs) You can't earn anything. You can't get God's approval. 
And the wonderful thing is, is right after that, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and then two of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. And that changes everything. So um, I would commend to you, if you go on YouTube to look for all the saints, give yourself a little bonus, and on the big saying, listen to the version of this. Um, I love the big saying because... When you look in the video of that, there are people from every race, every age. Um, it is a foretaste of heaven. So on that note, um, I want to just read this verse about obedience that we're going to close with each time. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asked why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So on that note, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that is contained in this book. Lord, we confess to you all of the ways that we have confused the faith once delivered to the saints. And we have forgotten so much that equips us for this battle in which we find ourselves. Lord, I pray for each person here everyone listening to this, that you would move in our hearts so that we would understand more and more the wonder of your love for us and that our response to that would be to fall on our knees and worship. Lord, we pray you would make us annoying to the devil, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.